Amy Graham, uh, <clears throat> lay down your, your burdens, I will carry you, I will carry you, my child, my child. Lay down your burdens, I will carry you, I will carry you, my child, my child. Because I can walk on water, I've calmed the restless sea, I've done a thousand things you've never done, and I'm weary watching as you struggle on your, no on your own, call my name and I'll come. I mean, you know, when we give, I mean, not just, not just surrender our good things, surrender it all. What is bothering you? Jonah's problem was what was bothering him, and he wasn't willing to surrender it, right? <clears throat> we, we do ourselves a great disservice when we're that way. Okay, I'm going to read uh, on Robert Morgan. And also, besides that, like we talked about with, with uh, Moses, I keep going with that. Like when we talked about with Moses, when he said, send somebody else to do it. I don't want to do it. We miss the blessing when we don't do it. This guy that wrote, uh, I Surrender All, and Robert Morgan writes, um, someone once said, only in the Christian life does surrender bring victory. I'm into that. Judson, now listen to this name, Judson Wheeler Van Deventer. How in the world did his mother ever teach him how to spell that? Learned that for himself. Born on a farm in Monroe County, Georgia, Michigan, excuse me, in 1855, Judson grew up interested in art and music. He was converted to Christ at 17. After graduating from college in Michigan, Judson became an art teacher and then supervisor for a high school. In 1885, he toured Europe visiting art galleries, museums, and studying painting. He was also a musician, <clears throat> having studied in numerous singing schools. All the while, Judson was heavily involved in the local Me Methodist Episcopal Church, whatever that is, where he sang in the choir. He found himself especially fulfilled when participating in evangelistic rallies and revivals in which people received Christ as their personal savior. Friends encouraged him to resign from the school system to enter full-time music. And for five years, he struggled with that decision. Finally, falling to his knees, he said, Lord, if you want me to give myself to full time, I'll do your work. I'll surrender it to you. For the next several years, he traveled extensively through the United States, England, and Scotland, assisting in evangelistic work, leading the singing for Wilbur Chapman and other evangelists, and winning men and women to Christ. While engaged in meetings in Ohio, Judson stayed at home of George Sebring, whose family founded Sebring, Ohio, and who himself later founded Sebring, Florida. It was there he wrote the hymn, I Surrender All. Moving to Tampa in 1923, he began teaching hymnology at Florida Bible Institute. He retired after several years, but still occasionally showed up on campus to lecture or to speak in chapel. In the 30s, a student at Florida Bible Institute sat wide-eyed listening to Judson Van Deventer. That student was Billy Graham later wrote, one of the evangelists who influenced my early preaching was also a hymnist who wrote, I surrender all. The Methodist Episcopal Church, I can help you on that. Okay, yeah. It was the same thing until up until about the um, early 1900s, and then they split apart, uh -huh. which is probably what's about to happen with the Methodist Church. They're about to, you know, the Methodists and Methodists are about to split again. Oh, I know. Um, but I know. that's why if you go to the Methodist and Episcopal Church, Either one, you can pretty much, you, you got it out. <laughs> you, you got you, that. They're interchangeable, it, and I can go to either one and be fine. Look out. Thank you. Thank you You're for welcome. that. Okay, Isaiah 64, 8. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Then he said to them out in Luke 9, 23 through 25, If anyone would come after me, now, y'all, this is this same rendition of this verse is in all four Gospels, uh, making it very important. 
red flagging it. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. This is Luke's because I like the way he says it. And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? John 12, 26, Jesus says, Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. That's crazy. My Father will honor the one who serves me? Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Do you ever think that way when you're in the midst of your circumstances that you want to pull every hair of your hair out and every hair of the person standing in front of you out? (laughs) You know, and you say, Father, save me from this. No, this is for your very hour that you were here because I'm bringing out in you what needs to come out of you, Beth. Um, No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour, Jesus said. Father, glorify your name. This is the key. I went through this whole lesson. How do we glorify God in our circumstances? How do we bring him the most glory? Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And by the way, as we bring him the most glory, it brings us the most good. He never outdoes that. In this last verse we read, Jesus instructed his disciples on the cost of discipleship. He tells us in in scripture, consider the cost. You consider the cost. You weigh it. And commitment to the Father's will by disclosing his emotions. His heart was troubled. In fact, in his great turmoil, when it says that, it means he was his heart was stirred and agitated because of the prospect set before him of being made sin for us in his death. In second bless you, in Second Corinthians five twenty one, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. So when he looks, God looks at Beth Yo, he sees righteousness. Not because of anything I've done, but because of Jesus. And only because of Jesus. In view of his turmoil, in view of this stirred, agitated inner being, should he now shrink back and ask for deliverance from this hour? Should we shrink back when the fires get hot and the circumstances are not of our choosing? Which, by the way, is like 24 hours a day. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And I'm not prone to exaggerating. (laughs) But, I mean, it's not good on my glasses and how I did that, I don't know. Um, but, I mean, you know, it's crazy. <clears throat> Certainly not. For his incarnation was for the very purpose of bringing him to the earth. You see, before the foundation of the earth, God had a plan for every single one of us. And he intends for each one of us to walk in it. He does. And, y'all, it's not because he wants some robots down here. This is for our good. We're the ones that miss out. I mean, we miss out extremely when we go our own way. I mean, look at Jonah. You want to end up in the belly of a whale, right? We don't. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And that's when he washed their feet. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. The time is here. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. 
you know, that would be a real good thing for us to remember in our spirits whenever we're in circumstances that just are not of our choosing. Lord, how can I bring you glory through this? At least for five seconds, it would keep me from shutting my mouth. Jesus willingly expressed his submission to the will of the Father. Even though the difficult and harrowing circumstances of the cross, by his words, he did it. Father, glorify your name. That was our Lord's heart's motivation. Is that our motivation? Is it to bring glory to me? Or comfort to me? Or good things to me? Or to bring him glory? That should be ours as well in the midst of our tribulations. Jesus, being our perfect role model, set forth for us as believers whenever we are facing dire and difficult circumstances, this flawless example of standing firm and embracing what God's pleasing and perfect will allowed and asking God to be glorified through it. All this, of course, being both for our good and his glory. There are no surprises in God's perfect economy. He is never taken by surprise. There's never a, really, she did that? No. It's all orchestrated. It's amazing. I mean, just that little thing I read there. (laughs) There's no doubt in my mind, there was no chance or happenstance that that man was teaching Billy Graham. I mean, God orchestrates everything. We just have to be willing, and we, we don't want to miss it, and we want to listen to his still, small voice. And he's a master at making beauty from ashes. So never think, it's too late, it's too long, I've gone too, much. I've gone too far, I'm down this road, I'm in this pit. Never too late. It's never too late to reach up. No hand, Corey Timboon says, God's hand ne- can always go further still down. Jesus was ever desirous that the Father's name be glorified through it all, which includes his thoughts, his words, his actions, and his heart's motivation. All of this was in spite of his inner stirred and agitating, conflicting emotions. Oftentimes, God's will can be not of our choosing, to say the least. Yet, as often stated, it is always for our good. That is why I so often repeat that we are to give our wills lined up with his will. Get your will lined up with his will. What does he want, Lord, from this? Teach me what you're trying to show me. We are to get our wanters fixed, as T.W. Hunt said. To will what he wills brings peace to the heart. Always. God, this is a quote got, uh, from, let's see, Richard Sipps is a, 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 a Puritan writer. God carries his children through this world through a variety of conditions. Sometimes we lack, and other times we abound. This allows our graces to be tested. We will find that God's love is stable, certain, and constant in a variety of conditions. God does not change, Malachi, and his love is constant. However, our (coughs) lives might change. We must learn not to quarrel with God's government. Let God do as he pleases as he brings us to heaven. It is no matter what the way is like or how rugged it is as long as he brings us there. God's grace is able to carry his children above all conditions. Amen. A man of grace is not overly dejected with abasement or overly lifted up in abundance, but carries himself in a uniform manner. Straight, as she goes. Steady. Not 
too much like this, and that's that's the way I live my life. <laughs> I'm like, whoop, up, down, up, down. He's <coughs> able to abound or lack without yielding to the temptations of those estates. He can abound without pride and lack without impatience. God is his portion. Is he our portion? Is he our sufficiency? Is he our strength? Is he all we need? Those that are not brought up in Christ's school are not able to do this. <coughs> if they abound, they are proud. And if they are cast down, they murmur, fret, and are dejected, as if there were no providence to rule the world. This is the excellency of a Christian. He has learned to abound and lack without being trapped by the snares. What he gives, like I told y'all before, live your life with open hands. I mean, he wants us to enjoy. In Ecclesiastes, it says there's nothing better than to, to enjoy what God has allowed. But if he decides to take what he has allowed away, we are not to be like this, where he pulls each finger off so that he can get it out. Because each time that one, two is painful. He gives, he takes away. As Job says, may the name of the Lord be praised. Paul was stellar at this in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. <coughs> I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. We are also told by the Apostle John to follow our role model in 1 John 2, 6, which he says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Spurgeon writes, following where he leads, um, he takes it from the verse John 10, 27, and they and they follow me, Jesus' words. We should follow our Lord as unhesitatingly as sheep follow their shepherd. And we've already talked about before how stupid sheep are. For he has a right to lead us wherever he pleases. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. Let's recognize the rights of the redeeming blood. The soldier follows his captain. The servant obeys his master. Even more so must we follow our redeemer to whom we are purchased possession. We are not true to our professing of being Christians if we question the bidding of our leader and commander. Submission is our duty. Judging too severely is our folly. Often our Lord might say to us, as he did to Peter, what is that to you? <laughs> I love that. You must follow me. Wherever Jesus may lead us, he goes before us. If we don't know where we are going, we know with whom we go. With such a companion, who will dread the perils of the road? The journey may be long, but by his everlasting arms will carry us to the end. The presence of Jesus is the assurance of eternal salvation. Because he lives, we shall live also. We should follow Jesus in the simplicity and faith, because the paths in which he leads us all end in glory and immortality. It is true that they may not be smooth paths. They may be covered with sharp, flinty trials. But they lead to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful to those for those who keep the demands of his covenant. Let's put full trust in our leader. Since we know that prosperity or adversity, sickness or health, popularity or contempt, his purpose, his purpose for every single one of us shall be worked out 
and that purpose shall be pure, unmingled good. I love that line, to every air of mercy. We shall find it sweet to go to the bleak side of the hill with Christ. And when rain and snow blow into our faces, his dear love will make us far more blessed than those who sit at home and warm their hands in the world's fire. To the top of Amana, to the dens of the lions, or to the hills of leopards, we will follow our beloved precious Jesus. Draw us and we will run after you. This was so. This was kind of funny, and I'm trying to work it in so it has some meaning to the. <laughs> but it was. It was. It was on Jonah. But uh, this guy that writes this was talking about his way and how we oftentimes, you know. Uh, well, let's see if I can pull it out after I read it. It's pretty funny. In his own in in. I can't say that word, inimitable, inimitable way, Mark Lowry. Do y'all know who that is? Oh, he's so funny. He's funny, yeah. Is, a, is he a Christian comedian? Okay, so he tells about his next-door neighbor during his childhood. This dude is talking about his, this is real life, next-door neighbor for his childhood. Her name was Helen Hamfit. <laughs> and he had a, she had a son named Fritz. Mark, Mark writes, I used to beat the tar out of him. <laughs> we'd start out wrestling, and we'd end up, and he'd end up running home crying. I'll never forget Helen. That's his mother. She was short and had the hairiest toes I've ever seen on a woman. <laughs> she was the only person I knew who could grow her own furry slippers. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. I was in there laughing. She puts on worn shoes. <laughs> <laughs> she wouldn't be barefoot because she was afraid of split ends. Uh, Helen didn't like me. I have no idea why. <laughs> but when Mama was about 13 months pregnant with my little sister, Helen walked up to Mama outside our house, pointed at Mother's stomach, and said, I hope that child didn't like Mark. <laughs> Mama swung around like only a pregnant woman can do and said, Listen here, Helen. One day God is going to use Mark. This was in his, his presence. Speak words of life to your kids, y'all. When I was a hyperactive kid coming home and notes from my teachers hanging all over my lapels, Mama would read each one of those notes, tuck me into bed, and she'd say, Mark, one day God's going to use you. Jonah lived his life with the same message beating through his heart every day. God is going to use you. He was a prophet. Jonah experienced how God could use him in a marvelous way that prospered his nation and his people. Then one day Jonah discovered God wanted him to do to use him in a way that he had danger, fear, intrigue, and change written all over it. God wanted Jonah to witness to a people who he did not like, people he actually hated. Jonah was not sure he wanted to be used in the way God wanted to use him. We face the same decision every day. We know God wants to use us. He saves us so we can serve him. Are we willing to serve him only in ways that are safe and popular? Or are we willing to go where he wants us to go and do what he wants us to do with the people he chooses to, for us to work with? Do we create the job description or does, job, or does God? Okay, now our verses for today are Jonah 4, 9 through 11. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? 
In our verses for today, we discover God asking Jonah the same question he posed earlier in verse 4. Do you have a right to be angry? But here in verse 9, God adds the words about the vine. The wording actually means, do you have a right to burn with anger as a fire that has just been ignited to be incensed about this vine? I mean, he was hot, mad, hot, hot, mad. God desired for Jonah to see the great contrast between his sparing Nineveh and his destroying the vine. Jonah's seeming total, seemingly total lack of concern for the spiritual welfare, the eternal state of the Ninevites, and his concern over his own physical comfort and welfare. Selfishness reeks in Jonah's unconcern for Nineveh and his concern for himself. Y'all, we have to be careful in our country because we're so comfort-oriented. I mean, we, we are ridiculous about what we think we have to have. Jonah replied that his anger over the withered plant was justified, so much so that he wanted to die. The prophet was so mad at God and at his uncomfortable circumstances that he was ready to die rather than give up his anger. He was so, felt so self-justified in his anger. His anger blinded him, blinded him to the absurdity of his feelings and his statements. Does our anger do that? Unrighteous anger feeds the ego and produces the poison of selfishness in the heart. It just feeds the ego. Okay, unrighteous anger feeds the ego and produces the poison of selfishness in the heart. I mean, you can feel that in your own self. When you, you, you start getting mad, and then you start defending your, your point or your whatever. And it just, that just feeds more and more and more and more into it. Uh, Spurgeon, Spurgeon writes this, uh, of this verse, in, of uh, he's so angry he wants to die. Anger is not always or necessar- necessarily sinful, because, of course, Jesus got angry, but it was, it was righteous anger. It has such a tendency to run wild that whenever it displays itself, we should be quick to question its character. When I'm angry, what am I angry at? And why am I angry? Do you have a right to be angry? <laughs> it's like what, 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 Jesus, what God said to, to Jonah. We should ask ourselves. It may be that you can answer yes. Very frequently, anger in the ma- is a madman's firebrand, but sometimes it is Elijah's fire from heaven. Now, Elijah was mad. I mean, that whole scene in 1 Kings is like, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if God is God, follow him. And the people just said nothing. They stood there mute, wide-eyed like a deer looking at him. We do well when we are angry with sin. But unfortunately, that's not very often, is it? Because of the wrong which it commits against our good and gracious God or with ourselves because we remain so foolish after so much divine instruction or with others when the sole cause of anger is the evil which they do. Those who are not angry at transgressions become partakers in them. Sin is a loathsome and hateful thing and no renewed heart can patiently endure it. God himself is angry with the wicked every day. And it is written in his word, let those who love the Lord hate evil. Far more frequently, it is to be feared that our anger is not commendable or even justifiable. And then we must answer no. Why should we, why should we be irritable with children, hot-blooded with servants, and wrathful with companions? 
<coughs> is such anger honorable to our Christian profession or glorifying to God? Does my attitude, does my actions, or my words glorifying God or honorable to my profession as a Christian? Isn't it the old evil heart seeking to gain dominion? And shouldn't we resist it with all might of our newborn nature? Many who are professing Christians give way to temper as though it were useless to attempt resistance. But let the believer remember that he must be a conqueror in every point or else he cannot be crowned. If we cannot control our tempers, what has grace done for us? Someone told Mr. J that grace was often grafted in a cat stump. Yes, he said, but the fruit will not be crabs. Crab stump, not, excuse me, not cat stump, crab stump, but the fruit will not be crabs. We must not make natural infirmity an excuse for sin, but we must fly to the cross and pray the Lord to crucify our tempers and to renew us in gentleness and meekness after his own image. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive grievances against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 5 through 10, put to death, therefore, did I just say that? No. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And greed, because of these, the, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other because you have taken off your old self and have put on your new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Jew. Oh, well, never mind. That's as far as I'm going. Jonah still had a problem with the will of God. He had a problem with it. He didn't want to do it. He just didn't want to do it. I'm reminded of Cain and Abel, the first fruits of Adam and Eve's union. In Genesis 4, 1 through 7, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to, the, to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. You know, another thing about Scripture, there's nothing just randomly in there just to fill pages Every word is important. Every word is important. And every innuendo that you see, you like go back and reread and reread. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. I mean, you can read that and you can gloss over all of, all of the reasons why God was angry. Cain didn't, well, anyway. The Lord looked with favor on Abel in his offering, but on Cain in his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why are you mad? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, Sin, and he makes it into a real live organism because it is a real live organism, is crouching at your door and it desires you. It wants you. But you must master it. We see here the nature of rebellious man unfolding in the presence of Cain, who had an auspicious beginning as the child of hope, the first child born to our original parents. 
But the narrative lines up, lines him up with the curse as he worked the soil. That was the curse of the land, quite literally the ground. Abel, however, seems to be lined up with man's original purpose to have dominion over life as he kept the flocks. These coincidental descriptions are enhanced with their actions in worship. Abel went out of his way to please God by offering him the best, the first fruits, the fat of his, of his, um, for his sacrifice, which meant faith in God, which meant he trusted in God's way. Because obedience demonstrates our faith. It doesn't, it doesn't make us, give us faith, it demonstrates it. It shows that we have it, that we indeed have it. Hebrews eleven six says, And without faith, it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Whereas Cain was simply discharging a duty to God. God doesn't care for you. If you have a list, of, oh, yes, quiet time, check. Go do something for somebody, check, check. He didn't care about that. He didn't care that you fill your list out. He cares about doing what he wants you to do. We so many times have our own agenda and we're so narrow and I'm the worst about it. Like I have, oh, I got to do this, blah, 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 like that. It's like, wait a minute. Slow down. Can you hear me? Can you hear my still small voice? I mean, really? It's so busy. So busy, busy, busy. Got to build an ark. Got to build an ark. Um... Whereas Cain was simply discharging a duty to God in his sacrifice, rendering his sacrifice not acceptable or evil. Now, that's another thing that I really came to me a million years ago. You know, like, every, fire will test the quality of each man's work. And it's not meaning salvation. I'm talking about the, the fire that will test each Christian's, the quality of each Christian's work. And those that are done in the flesh, poof, like, like poof. Like, I mean, you know, it goes up like a... It, quick, like the the fire, <coughs> right? Yes, it's gonna it's gone. And so, what you do eternally, anything eternally, is is gold, silver, and costly stones. Those things are his what through his power. He will never own a man's power. God will never own it. Remember, God is always looking for at the motivation behind the action. The motivation is just as important as the action, guys. 1 John 3, 12 tells us, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because of his, his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. He was ticked. These two types of people are still present. Cain's lack of faith shows up in, the, <clears throat> in his response to God's rejection of his offering of fruit. Just as the older brother in the story of the prodigal rejected the father's offer to come in and celebrate because he was angry that the father was merciful to the younger brother. And he didn't go in. And just as Jonah refused to celebrate with the salvation of the Ninevites, Cain refused to listen to God's voice. Rather than being concerned about remedying the situation and pleasing God, I mean, if you're convicted of something, the quicker you turn, the better off it is for you, girl. I'm just going to tell you. You're not gonna get, it's not going to get any easier or better. Cain became very angry. Indeed, Cain was so angry, he would not be talked out of his sin, even by God.
In chapter 1 of Jonah, Jonah's mind, Jonah's mind understood God's will. Jonah knew perfectly what God wanted, but he refused to obey it. And he took his body in the opposite direction. That was in chapter 1 of Jonah. In chapter 2, Jonah cried out for help, and God rescued him. And he gave his body back to the Lord. In chapter 3, Jonah yielded his will to the Lord and went to Nineveh to preach. But his heart was obviously not yet surrendered to the Lord's will and ways. It was kind of like reminding me when I moved to Fort Payne. What do I need to do so that I can get out of here? That was my attitude. I was going to be obedient but because I went for a motive, for a reason. Meaning his heart did not beat with the Lord's. Does our heart beat with the Lord's? Do we want what he wants? Because what we, if we want what he wants, it will bring peace to the soul. Jonah did the will of God, but not from his heart. And once again, the motivation behind the action is as important to God as, as, the, as the action. Scripture tells us in 1 Chronicles 28, 9, when David was praying for Solomon, And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. Behind the thoughts, even. Not even the actions. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Proverbs tells us, all a man's ways seem innocent to him. But motives are weighed by the Lord. Life for Jonah... This is a quote from uh, Judson Mather. Life for Jonah is a series of disconcerting surprises and frustrations. He tries to escape from God and is trapped. He then gives up, accepts the inevitability of perishing, and he's saved. He obeys when he's given a second chance and is frustratingly embarrassing successful. He blows up. His frustration is intensified. Like Cain, Jonah had more lessons to learn. Perhaps the most important one of all. In chapter 1, he learned the lesson of God's providence and patience, that you cannot run away from God. Praise him for that. He is the hound of heaven. He will go to the ends of the earth for you. Praise him for that. All we need to do is look up. In chapter 2, he learned the lesson of God's pardon that God forgives those who call upon him. In chapter 3, he learned the lesson of God's power as he saw a whole city humble itself before the Lord. Do you think that was because of his pathetic little witness? I don't think so. I mean, 40 days and Nineveh's going to be destroyed. Now, how many people would, would turn in repentance to God for that? You I mean, you know, really. Now he had to learn the lesson of God's pity that God had compassion for lost sinners like the Ninevites and his servants must also have mercy and compassion. Um, in my, my, my good book by my friend Laura, <laughs> it says, uh, The Steadfast Love of the Lord. This is by John Flavel. He's a Puritan writer. The Steadfast Love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. God's mercies over his people are exceedingly great and tender. He does not delight in afflicting and grieving them. He delays as long as the honor of his name and the safety of his people will permit. 
When the people are humbled, his heart is melted into compassion for them. However tender his compassions are, it often falls out that he gives them up into the hands of their enemies for the correction of their evils. He would rather their hearts be heavy under adversity than careless under prosperity. The choicest spirits have been exercised with the sharpest sufferings. And those that now shine as stars in heaven have been trod underfoot as dung on the earth. What grievous sufferings God has called his dearest people to. If God is inclined to mercy, why has he often hedged in his own people by his providence in a, in a suffering path? By this, the most wise God will illustrate the glory of his name. In grievous sufferings, he manifests the glory of his power in their support, escape, and deliverance. Through sufferings, he advances their happiness. Corruptions are mortified, and sincerity proved to the joy and satisfaction of their own hearts. Many doubts and fears are removed and answered. Sufferings are are ordained to free the church of hypocrites. Affliction is a furnace to separate the dross from pure gold. I think about Peter when everybody left him. He turns around and Jesus turns around to Peter and goes, Are you going to leave me too? And Jesus, Peter says, Where would we go? We've given you everything. Where would we go? You know, Jesus was very popular at first. And then the crowd started leaving and going. Affliction is a furnace to separate. Jesus felt every single thing we feel too. He felt every single thing we did too. He came down here to live the perfect life, inflicted what all these things. There's nothing that can happen that didn't happen to him. Affliction is a furnace to separate the dross from pure gold. Multitudes of hypocrites like flies in a hot summer are generated by the church's prosperity. But the winter weather kills them. Suffering endear the family of God to each other. Times of suffering are times of reconciliation and great endearments. By suffering, we are awakened to the duties and taught to pray more frequently and fervently. How many of y'all are on your knees 24 hours a day when everything is swimmingly well? We forget. We run ahead. Ah, what drowsiness and formality creep in at times of prosperity. (coughs) Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians, Therefore, as God's chosen people, we're chosen people, and we're holy and dearly loved. We're to clothe ourselves, put on every day. Think about this. Clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, with patience. We are to bear with one another. And y'all, this is particularly means those in our houses. I mean, it, I mean it's, so, it, it's so easy to be nice to y'all. <laughs> Let me just tell y'all, it's just so easy. But, you know, when you're in the middle of the night, you go into, the, like, 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 like Rachel was saying with the boys, you know, you go into the bathroom and then you sit down on a seat that's up and not down. It's, you know, you're just like going, who did it? <laughs> and it's cold, whatever. I mean, there are a million things that can be annoying, little ninnies, you know, all the time. 
But he wants us to do this, forgiving whatever grievances we may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. See, that's the problem. When we get all hot and mad, we forget that we're big fat sinners too in need of a Savior and in need of forgiveness. You know, that that was one of the things I tried to teach my children. I am in this with y'all, man. This is hard for me too. This is not easy. I'm just right now put in charge of y'all. And I'm supposed to, and I have the hardest job because I'm supposed to model something for y'all, which makes it even worse. So over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And that love is such an overused word, but it's patient, it's kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. It does not like delight delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It protects, it trusts, it hopes, it perseveres. It is an action. It's not this emotive feeling that we don't feel like loving right now. Then you do love. You do love. Like you act love. Whether you feel love or not. Whether you feel it. We are to be thankful people and not an angry brood too. Christians are known what they're against more than they were known what we're for. Indeed, we are to be constantly giving thanks with joy. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is God's will for your life in Christ Jesus. Just like when that man waited five years before he started, before he went to seminary, wrestling with all of that, and then he didn't know what that was going to turn out to be. See, we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, but God doesn't see that way. He doesn't see that way. And we won't when we get to heaven. A fool gives vent, full vent. Jonah was a fool. A full vent to his anger. He gave full vent to God. But a wise man keeps himself under control. And people say, I don't have any self-control. Well, you know what you do if you're a Christian? Because that's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now, if you don't manifest it, and you shrink in it by allowing sin to, to be stronger in you, then you might not see it. But it is in there. James 1.20, we find, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. This is so hard for me. Slow to speak, because I'm sitting there thinking, blah, 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 yeah, I get, I get energy, energy, yeah, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. It seems incredible that Jonah brought a whole city to faith in the Lord, and yet he did not love the people he was preaching to. Indeed, he was quite angry about the way it all went down. Next, we discover God wanting Jonah to see that he simply had no right to be angry over Nineveh or the vine because Jonah did not give life to nor sustain life for either of them. I am reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, for what makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you, as if you did not? Not one of us, not one of us can make something ex nihilo out of nothing. Not one of us. Not one of us. And yet God breathed everything ex nihilo. Neither is he sitting up in heaven waiting for our marching orders. 
God, you've got to do this. Oh, really? It's like a, like a two-year-old coming to me. You've got to do this. I don't think so. <laughs> i got to do that. I don't think so. Neither is he sitting up there waiting for us to do our bidding. We are his. We, have been, we are not our own. We've been bought with a high price by the blood of Jesus. And we are therefore to honor God with our bodies as well as with our heart, soul, mind, strength, mouth, and hands. Does it bring you glory, Lord? Does that thought bring you glory? If it doesn't bring you glory, then it brings me down. That's what we've got to get into. Our, it's hurting me. Jonah was neither sovereign over Nineveh nor the plant which God had provided. He had no control over that plant's growth or of its withering. The vine was quite temporal as it sprang up overnight and died overnight and was relatively of little value. Yet we discovered Jonah grieving over it. Indeed, he became burning with anger and wanting to die. A bit extreme, is it not? Oh, I can so relate. It's cold in here. It's hot in here. I don't like the pillow. It's like there's a pee in my bed or whatever, you know. Was he, this is hot anger causing something good to happen? Does our hot anger cause something good to happen? That's a good question to ask me. Am I so mad? Is this, is this going to cause a, is something good to happen from this? The prophet was so mad at God in his uncomfortable circumstances that he was ready to die rather than give up on his anger. Now that's pitiful. His boiling rage blinded him to the absurdity of his feelings and his statements. Certainly Jonah had no part in making the plant grow. Nineveh, neither did he have any part in creating the Ninevites. But God had, and he loved them, and he cared for them. God, I mean, sometimes we get so um, insulated and we think, oh, you know, he doesn't care for these people out here that are doing all these horrible things. Yeah, he does. Because all, all those people doing those horrible things are just like us if we are filled with sin. We are just as capable. Make no mistake about that. God sought to calm his prophet down with a bit of simple reasoning. Let's compare your situation with my situation, he says. You watched a vine get eaten away, and you got all worked up with concern and pity over the vine. Now this vine was something that just came to you. It was just given to you, just like every single thing we have has just been given to us. God basically said, you did not tend this vine, nor did you make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. Think about the real value of it. Something simple, simply for your comfort. Does my prophet love a one-day wonder-gourd vine more than my eternal mission? Do we love a one-day wonder-gourd vine, whatever that vine is, more than God's mission? It seems as though he did. Remember, to will what God wills brings peace to the soul. God's words to the prophet indicate that Jonah had no right to be angry. Donald Baker paraphrases the Lord's response this way. Let's analyze this anger of yours, Jonah. It represents your concern over your beloved plant. But what did it really mean to you? Your attachment to it couldn't have been very deep, for it was here one day and gone the next. 
Your concern was dictated by self-interest, not by genuine love. You never had the devotion of a gardener. If you feel as bad as you do, what would you expect a gardener to feel like, who tended a plant and watched it grow, only to see it wither and die? This is how I feel about Nineveh, only much more so. All those people, all those animals, I made them. I've cherished them with these, all, all these years. You can imagine how they broke his heart. Nineveh has cost me no end of effort, and it means the world to me. Your pain is nothing compared to mine when I contemplate her destruction. Because see, God does not desire for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. It is not his desire to destroy. Jonah's affections were distorted. He cared more for a vine than for human lives. He cared more for his personal comfort than for his spiritual destiny of thousands of people. He cared more for his ways than God's. Ugh. That's convicting. What a picture of Israel in Jonah's day. What a picture of Israel in Beth's day. It should, it should cause us to question our own hearts as well. Do we care for our own comforts more than for the souls of men? In our comfort and ease, we can far too quickly become distracted over the temporal rather than the eternal. We make our luxuries and wants into necessities and grumble and complain when we don't have them. Like Jonah and Cain, we become duty-bound and our desires look totally different from God's heart and his will. We play church. That has to nauseate him. It's like, why bother? We want our hearts to beat with his. We want what he wants because his will for us is always pleasing and perfect and for our ultimate best, even if we are bewildered about what he is up to. And y'all, most of the time, we are bewildered. Sometimes we don't ever know the why. <clears throat> he is never bewildered. He makes known the end from the beginning, from ancient times which yet to come. He says, my purposes will stand and I will do all that I please. His purposes are always to <clears throat> for our unmingled good, for every air of mercy, even though perhaps our eyes of clay are confused over what he allows. Just because of our confusion doesn't mean he is. He is working all things out for a glorious and perfect end, and he uses everything, and I mean everything, everything in our lives to reach that goal. Everything. The, um, this was a uh, Desiring God thing, and it's by uh, Scott Hubbard, and it's called Wait for the Ending. Wait for the Ending. The stories God loves to tell. And God is interesting in how it all plays out. Faith in a sovereign God does not prevent us from sometimes feeling bewildered about what our sovereign God is doing. What is he up to? On a small scale, we can grasp for reasons behind everyday frustrations like dead car batteries and sleepless nights, mere inconveniences to be sure, but nevertheless enough to sometimes ruin what we thought were God-honoring plans for the day. Perhaps we can agree with Packer when he writes, the harder you try to understand the divine purpose in the ordinary providential course of events, the more obsessed and oppressed you grow with the apparent aimlessness of everything. 
Such confusion is troubling us enough in the everyday, but it can altogether be faith-shaking when contrary to all our expectations, we witness the last breath of what seemed to be a God-given dream. How, <clears throat> how, we, how do we make sense of a church plant that fails to take root? Or a child who, despite every spiritual privilege, walks away from a parent's faith? Or of a God-hoped for a relationship that finally comes and then ends after the first few notes. No matter which way we turn, these stories, our most creative imaginings can invent no happy ending. Like Noah's dove, our faith flies away from the ark in search of solid ground but returns uh, returns without an olive branch. Perplexing but not despairing. The Apostle Paul was not exempt from such bewildering, bewildering experiences. True, he could write, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. But he could also write, we are perplexed, in 2 Corinthians. The peace of God does not shield us from, provi- from providences of God that feel, at least for a moment, utterly perplexing. I'm sure when he wanted to go east and kept trying to go east and the Holy Spirit kept preventing and kept going, why, 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 so that he could go west. Nevertheless, Paul can tell us in the next breath but we are not driven to despair. We are not driven to pers- despair. Perplexed, but not despairing. Bewildered, but not hopeless. Where did Paul's hope rest when God's providence disoriented him? And how do we follow the apostle and revive our hope in God when we can see around us no reason to keep hoping? We do so in part by closing our eyes to hope in what we cannot see, what an eye cannot, what, what no eye can see and no ear heard, nor a heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. When God's promises to do us good seem to have fallen on the ground, we do not resign ourselves to what our eyes can see or what our ears can hear or what our hearts can imagine, but rather to what God has prepared for those who love him. Perhaps many of us heard these words from Paul spoken at funerals or in conversation about heaven, but if you're going to feel the force of, of 1 Corinthians 4, um, 2, 9, <coughs> excuse me, 2, 9, <coughs> we need to notice that Paul <coughs> is looking backward, not forward. <coughs> I mean, excuse me, Paul does not declare here his hope of what God will do. He celebrates what God has already done. And if he will do the greater, he will also do the lesser. <clears throat> he celebrates what God has already done in the crucified and risen Christ. And if, and I already said that, okay. No, I can see. On this side of the cross, an empty tomb, we seldom just feel how improbable God's promises could have appeared to God's people before the coming of Christ. It was so opposite of what they were expecting. By the end of the old covenant era, the promises of a king and kingdom seemed to have died beneath Israel's disobedience. At the same time, however, God kept making promises, promises that did not diminish as Israel's earthly prospects waned, but rather intensified through the prophets. As Israel's temple lay in ruins, God promised to build a bigger, more glorious temple than Solomon's ever was. As the worshipers of Yahweh dwindled through exile, God promised that all nations would one day stream to Jerusalem. As the presence of God seemed confined to a remnant in Babylon, God promised that the knowledge of his glory would one day flood the earth. As Israel grew more skilled in wickedness, God promised that they would one day obey him with a whole heart. 
And somehow God will fulfill all those promises while remaining relentlessly committed to his own name. He would forgive rebels without injustice, redeem Israel without unfaithfulness, rescue sinners without forfeiting his right to say, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. Or how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. No eye could see what God would do. No ear could hear his plans. No heart could imagine his fulfillment. Um, um, I could imagine a, a prospective Israelite looking upon God's promises, looking upon God's people and feeling perplexed. Had I been living in the Old Testament period, I would have had very little idea, despite the hints of the coming Messiah, of how God would resolve the problem. Were I skeptical bent, I might have... And even <clears throat> most fanciful dreamer could imagine. Angels themselves long to look at these things. A harder, happy ending. The grand story of redemption and hundreds of smaller stories within the grand story reminds us of the kind of story God loves to tell. He loves to redeem. He, he told, he, Jesus told the disciples, go pick up the broken pieces. He loves those broken pieces. And he loves to redeem them. Stories, even though you think, how can you make beauty out of this ash, Lord? How can you do it? I don't know, but you can. Stories where everything seems to go wrong and happy endings feel absolutely impossible. I mean, think about Paul Bunyan, for heaven's sakes. When he's in the prison for 14 years, away from his family of six children, young wife, six babies, starving, no money, and, there, and he's in jail for 14 years for preaching the gospel. And why was he, or seven years, or however long he was in there, and why was he in there? So he could write Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, and he would not have gotten to do that had he been in life. Sometimes he has to take us away and put us in our prisons. Don't kick against his best. Stories were for what feels like far too long, and we're perplexed at his plans. We just think, end it, Lord. Just make it come to an end. Do whatever. They, stories with endings that defy our despair and usher in a joy beyond all reckoning. If we could see now how God will resolve our confusion, dispel our disappointment, heal our broken hearts, we would no longer be living in a story. We would no longer need hope. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is not the end, and this is not our home. In our moments of bewilderment, our role is not to know the ending of the story, but to wait for the ending, and in the meantime, to live as faithful characters. And as we do, in part, by remembering what Paul that the most perplexing problems in this world's history has already come and has already been resolved, and that was our sin. No matter how confusing our own stories are, God has already brought to pass the harder and happier ending. He has already made a way for injustice and mercy to kiss. He has already turned a cross into a thr throne and a grave into a footstool. He has been already broken the curse that hung over all of Adam's race. To us, it may feel impossible for God to weave the frayed threads of our broken dreams into something beautiful, but he is doing it. You can trust me in that. And from all human perspective, it may be, 
but compared to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what feels impossible to us is a small thing for God. Small thing. After acknowledging the apparent pointlessness of the ordinary providential course of events, Packer reminds us that the inscrutable God of providence is the wise and gracious God of creation and redemption. We can be sure that the God who made this marvelously complex world order and who compassed the great redemption from Egypt and who later compassed the even greater redemption from sin and Satan knows what he is doing and doeth all things well, even if for a moment he hides his hand. Beware then of judging your story before God reveals his hand. Don't judge your story before his hand is revealed. If you are in Christ, the final finale is sure. What your eye cannot see now, what your ear cannot hear now, and what your heart cannot imagine now, your God is preparing for you. Trust him, love him, and wait for the ending. Donna Evans in Bible Bits, I'm just going to read this a little bit. She was talking about, this is how, it's, it's, it gives us enough of these little stories that are, these redemption stories that just uh, keep us encouraged and keep us going. But she teaches a young mom's group at Bible, at uh, Briarwood, and anyway, she um, had one of her girls asked her to have lunch, and she wanted to ask her a question. And so she, when they went to lunch, Donna said, tell me a little bit about her, herself, yourself. And so Haley began to tell her story that she was in Greenville, Alabama. Both of her parents were committed Christians, having served overseas as missionaries. Eventually, Haley's dad became a pastor at a local church in Greenville. She graduated from Greenville High School, attended Auburn, attained a master's degree in Sanford, and taught second grade and served as a missionary to Honduras and eventually returned to Birmingham and she became assistant principal to Mount Laurel Elementary. Haley met her husband at our church and then they have a daughter almost three years old. Donna says, none of that was very unusual or particularly you know, extraordinary. The next part of her story was what Haley really wanted to talk about. In our Romans class, we had been discussing adoption as one of the key doctrines of our Christian faith. Throughout the first few chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul reminds the Roman Christians that they are no longer slaves to sin, fear, or death. Instead, all who are united with Christ are adopted into God's family and are now sons of God. Packer tells us our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian or as opposed to um, merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Father has become his covenant name. For the covenant which binds him to his people now stands revealed as a family covenant. Christians are his children, his sons, and his daughters, They're his heirs. I'm adopted, Haley said. My birth mother left my twin sister and me abandoned by a dumpster on the streets of South Korea. Someone found us and looked. Now I want you to see God's hand through the story. Someone found us and took us to a nearby orphanage. My adoptive American parents hadn't been able to conceive children. I mean, don't you know that was a sadness? They wanted to conceive, but they... It's purpose in every pain. That's one thing about Christians, this purpose in your pain. Um, so they decided to pursue adoption while they were serving as missionaries in Korea. My mom had always wanted twin girls. After praying for God's guidance, Mom went to the orphanage and asked if they had twin girls available. 
the orphanage director, not wanting first-time American parents to adopt twins, said no. Mom left disappointed but kept praying for God's guidance. A couple of days later, Mom returned to the orphanage and insisted that her twin girls were there. Surprised by the Americans' perseverance on adopting twin Korean girls, the director admitted that two twin girls about six weeks old were indeed available. Because Haley's mom and dad had been living in Korea for two years, the paperwork and adoption process were expedited, and the two little girls became theirs. I'm a great example of how radically different someone's life can be changed when he or she is adopted, Haley explained. When my parents adopted me, everything changed. I got a new name, and think about this as a Christian. I got a new name, a new family, even a new country. My life went from living on the streets of Korea to living with a loving father and mother who cared for me, loved me, provided for me, and gave me a chance for life. I've been, asking to, I've been asked to speak briefly at a Christmas tea, and I'm not sure what to share. Can you help me with it, she said. I quickly realized that Haley had her own unique story for God's glory, as do we all. And um, anyway, she's, Donna suggested that she um, contrast her circumstances and situation as they were before adoption and how they changed after it. Haley did, did just that yesterday, and she shared her story with us. We were all blown away about how far God went to rescue her from the slums and streets of Korea. Haley is a beautiful young woman with radiates joy and confidence. Haley's life story is a great illustration of our own rescue story and adoption into God's family. We are chosen, not forsaken. We are children of God. As such, we need to remember who we are as our identity. You are a child of the king. Do you walk and act as a child of the king? Whose we are? Who do we represent? We represent him. A good story has three elements. It's real, it's raw, and it's redemptive. Haley's story was certainly that, but it was so much more. As she finished her adoptive story, Haley filled in some other details, reminding all of us on a father who helps us gather all of our broken pieces, and Donna's real big about that. Haley's mom had a gift for learning languages, and she retained much of the Korean language. Years after the adoption in a little Alabama town, Haley's mom got to put her Korean language skills to good use when the Hyundai Automobile manufacturer built a plant outside of Montgomery. Haley's mom was the only non-Korean person fluent in the Korean language living in that community. That is not chance or happenstance. <laughs> I mean, really, you know. As, as such, she accompanied Hyundai's executive wives to doctor's appointments, school meetings, and even Walmart. Opening up an avenue, y'all. Keep your eyes open to where he's leading you. The Korean government recently closed adoptions to Americans, but Haley and her husband are eligible because they, she's Korean, and so they're getting um, a, a baby from Korea. I mean, so it, it's the way God just works. I mean, to me, it just was over and over again that, that nothing is chance and nothing is happenstance, you know? Um, like Jonah, sometimes God's way seems so confusing. He was really confused about it. The Ninevites, like we said at the very beginning, were not nice people. They were horrible people. They were ruthless people. And, they, and, and, and they, they were huge enemies of the Israelites. And he did not understand it. Why are you doing this? I'm sure he's thinking to himself. Broken dreams for our own self. Plans thwarted. Prodigal children. Overworked and underpaid. Sickness, death, or whatever. And it is simply hard for us to rest in the why of it all. It's hard to rest in the why. So get our thinking off of the why. 
God got Job's thinking off of the why and put them on the who. You think about the who and leave the why behind. It is comforting to know that God is never, ever, ever, ever taken by surprise. Ever. He is orchestrating our best out of each of our circumstances, both for our good and for his glory, never one surpassing the other. And also, he is a master and loves to do it, of making beauty out of ashes. He loves that because he's glorified in that. He's not about pumping up Beth Yo to make her something. He's not about pride. It's an insidious monster and it can creep in. He's about glorifying himself because glorifying himself gets others to look up. Why did he call, like I'm in, in Exodus now, you know, and, and, he, and he spent 10 times trying to get Pharaoh. He, wasn't, he knew Pharaoh, he knew exactly what was happening, but 10 times Moses exits. Moses tries to get Pharaoh to let him go, you know, and and he's and he's showing you're we're doing this so that you know exactly who's doing these things. I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you even say that you want this period you want the flies removed, Pharaoh, at this time. So you'll know that it is God's doing this. So he is glorified. We received a letter recently which I just gonna share a little part of it which related a little bit to what we're talking about here, how God just orchestrates everything, and he's continually orchestrating it for our lives. In hindsight, it's always 2020. <laughs> like I said, hope that is seen is no hope at all. We hope for what he's already seen. But if we hope for what we do not yet see, we wait for it patiently, without grumbling and complaining. We had an unusual house, as most of y'all know, in Fort Plain. Quite frankly, we didn't have a clue how we were going to sell it when it was time to move. Period. Interestingly, after a brief course of events, um, it, unusual God-ordained events, Truett Kathy bought our Fort Payne house and he used it for missionaries and church staff retreat. So all of our hard work went towards something that was beneficial for the kingdom. So that was really a blessing to me. Subsequently, Bob became involved with serving on boards of, the, of some of their ministries, and one of them was Life Shape. It was started by Truett's daughter and son-in-law, John and Trudy White. And that's the John that we've been praying about because he was, he really has gone through a real sickness. Uh, they didn't, he was in Brazil and they had, they do a lot of mission trips over there and he got some kind of virus in his spine and anyway, he goes very, very sick, but he's much better now. So anyway, Trudy writes us this letter and she says just a little bit of it. We can do nothing but count our blessings. I mean, he was bad sick and he's my age. So, I mean, you know, you don't just zip up out of it. <clears throat> Um, realizing God is always in control. To think we first met in Fort Payne, thinking my dad, true, it was crazy to be purchasing your house. <laughs> but look how God used it for our good and his glory. These are her words. God knew we needed to know you, to walk with you, to seek, this is to Bob, not to me, to seek your wise counsel and to share dreams together for kingdom impact. Was, you know, when I can... My mother used to say that, that selling our Fort Payne house to Truett Kathy was a bigger miracle than the Red Sea parting. I mean, really. I mean, it was nothing we did, nothing we orchestrated. It happened in a two-week period. It was nothing we did. But God, my two favorite words in Scripture, he knew. He orchestrated. He did it. That's what he did. Before the foundation of the earth, y'all, 
don't be mistaken. And what God has orchestrated his desire for us to walk in is for, and not buck against it. And it's perfect and pleasing. As Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, therefore I urge you. I mean, that word urge is like, I'm begging you here. I'm begging you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God bless you. Um, um, There's something I was just going to say, but I forgot it. Or will. Epaphras prayed this for the church of Colossae. We were just going over this. I guess it was Ben that was preaching. Was it on Sunday about being standing firm in God's will, mature and fully assured? This is a this is a huge thing to pray for your kids. Huge thing, both for yourself and and for others in your spheres. Epaphras, who is one of you, and Paul says, in the servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, and that wrestling is like a sweat. He is wrestling in prayer. Do we wrestle in prayer, y'all? Prayer, that's a whole other thing. But it's not to be taken lightly. That you stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. On a side note, oftentimes we can go to our graves not knowing the answer to our whys. But indeed, God in his loving graciousness allows us to go to our graves resting in the who. We want to rest in the who. That he loves us that he cares for us, that he died for us, that he saved us, that he's got a place for us. He's never promised that this road is going to be easy. In this world, you will have the levis. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Deuteronomy 33 says, Let the beloved of the Lord rest secure in him, for he shields him all day long. And the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. He who makes known the end from the beginning, from ancient times which yet to come, is on our side. And he, and he loves us with an everlasting love, rejoicing over us with singing. Never, ever, ever forget that particularly when circumstances are, pecu- are confusing and bewildering. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. God continues his discourse and tells Jonah that in Nineveh there were more than 120,000 people who could not tell their right hand from their left. More likely, this refers to immature little children some people, you know, they're not sure. So there were 120,000 of them in Nineveh and its suburbs, which means the population was not a small one. Basically, I think that's what Scripture is really trying to say. God certainly had a special concern for all the children, as he always does. Ooh, it makes him mad when people mistreat children. Don't mistreat children. People are bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and put his hands on them and blessed them. Whether this number refers to children or adults, the Assyrians all needed to know the Lord. Jonah had pity on the vine that perished, but he did not have compassion or pity for the people who were perishing and would be living eternally apart from God. Often we do not appreciate how amazingly wonderful heaven is and how terrible and awful hell is. If we had a glimpse of that, if we just had a glimmer of that, we would all be missionaries, I think. We all are missionaries. 
Both Jeremiah and Jesus looked on the city of Jerusalem and they wept over it. They had compassion over it. And Paul beheld the city of Athens and was greatly distressed. But Jonah looked at the city of Nineveh and seized with anger. He needed to learn a lesson of God's mercy and pity and like God have a heart of compassion for lost souls. Whereas Jonah had thought God was absurd in sparing Assyrians, God exposed Jonah as the one who was, whose thinking was absurd. Jonah and Nahum are the only books of the Bible that end with questions. And both books have to do with the city of Nineveh. Nahum ends with the question about God's punishment of Nineveh, while Jonah ends with the question about God's concern and pity over it. This is a very strange way to end such a dramatic book. God's first, God has the first word and God has the last word. Of course he does. Yet the re reader is left not knowing how Jonah answered the final question. And we, he talks about we sincerely pray that, that he um, did repent and yield. And, and most people that I've read think that he did. Uh, Alexander White said, but Jonah came to himself during those five and 25 days or so from the east gate of Nineveh back to Gath Heifer. And Spurgeon says, let us hope that during the rest of his life he so lived as to rejoice in the sparing mercy of God. After all, hadn't Jonah himself been spared because of God's great mercy and kindness? We're so quick to want mercy for ourselves, but we're also so quick to be unmerciful to others. God was willing to spare Nineveh, but in order to do that, he could not spare his own son. Somebody had to die for their sins, or they would die in their sins. Paul says, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also willingly give us all things? As the book concludes, Jonah was angry, depressed, hot, and faint, and was left to contemplate God's word about his own lack of compassion and God's depth of compassion. The Lord had made his point. He was gracious toward all nations, toward Gentiles, as well as Israelites. He is sovereign, he punishes rebellion, and he wants his own people to obey him and to get rid of a religious sham. Some good questions for us to ponder as we close from the book of Jonah are this. Do we agree with God that people without Christ are eternally lost? Like God, do we have a compassion for those who do not know Jesus as their Savior and Lord? And how do we concretely demonstrate his compassion, this compassion? How do we demonstrate it? Do we have a concern for those in our great cities where there is so much sin yet so little witness? Are we faithful to pray that the gospel will go to the people in every part of the world and are helping to send it there? Do we rejoice when sinners repent and trust the Savior? All of these questions and more are wrapped up in what God asked Jonah. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this great city? We cannot answer for Jonah, but we can answer for ourselves. Jonah is a remarkably tragic example of the plight of the nation of Israel. Both Jonah and Israel were accused of religious disobedience and disaffection. What a tragedy when God's people care more about creaturely comforts than for the interests of God's will, will among men. May this not be said of us. <clears throat> Let us, us be the gift to others and bring the gift and be in being the gift, we are blessed, Don says. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the book of Jonah. I thank you that it brings all my infirmities to light. Lord, help me to handle one at a time. Lord, show me what you would have us to do. Lord, help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Help us to please you in all that we say and do and think. Lord, just use us mightily. In this period when we're not meeting together, Lord, just help us to remember to pray for one another. 
and strengthen um, each other through our prayers. And Father, I just thank you again for your word. I thank you that we have the privilege of opening it with freedom and not fear. And I just ask that you would just use us, Lord, in any way you want. And I ask this in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. All right, guys. And y'all, Nuke's closed. Hello. Can you believe that? So, so where, where are we going to go to Panera? They closed like they just shut the doors. And April, when the girls there, they were so sweet. I'm so worried at what happened to her. I don't know what happened to her. Or she was gonna, she just got married. They just yeah, they fired everybody the next morning. I know. And then, and then. You would think that. I don't think it. it yeah. Okay, which one? You can, which one is it, baby? The one. Uh, okay, you just look. Wait for that. Do we, where do you, I know, and they're always so busy. And, and the one next door, you know, the one up in Vestavia on 31, right by the Mexican restaurant, there's nobody in there. And they can't let us try that one? Yeah, we could. The yogurt mountain. That's close too. I know. I'm it did. That's close too because I went the other day. That's what I've been eating while I'm pregnant. It just closed. And I went to the door and it was locked and it said our lease wasn't renewed. Sorry. Yeah, I noticed that too. <laughs> I'm pregnant. Why did I notice? That's what my dad said. He thought it might be. It might be. It, be. it, it might be. be. I don't know how many of them closed, though. Do you? No, but she was talking about yogurt mountain. Oh yeah, I know. But well, well, y'all want to try? We can do. We can do. We can do. Right. James starts January 14th. To others, um, be faithful to do the homework such that it is, and I'll pass that around right now. And it's like what you do if you haven't ever been in here before is you read um, this. The what we're going to be doing next week is James one one through eighteen. So you'll read it every day. That's all you have to do. You don't have to do fill out anything. You know all these. I'm just. I never could figure it out. I never knew what the people were asking when I do these. You know, other studies or something where you fill out these books. I'm like, what are you trying to figure out here? You know, so I don't make you answer questions or any of that stuff. Just read it and and record insights, things that God is speaking to you. Because my goal in all of this is to get you to go further still. Just to get you to go. It's not to hear me yap, 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 but it's to grow up in Him. And we all can go further still. None of us are there. Every single one of us is in need to grow. And he wants to meet with you. And he does that personally through his word. And I don't, I don't know of another shortcut. I don't. I mean, you know, I'm old. And there's not, this isn't a shortcut. It's kind of like um, the story about Billy Graham. When um, Jerry Bridges, who wrote, you know, all that Left Behind series, and he came to interview Billy Graham. He wanted to do a, um, a biography on him. And he wanted to know what made his life be so like it was because when you go if y'all ever been up to um the cove in Asheville, which is the training center it's just so amazing and so spirit-filled and and there are pictures that are as big as these walls and they you don't even know that they're people 
I mean, there's this mass of humanity that he's reached. And anyway, so he wanted, Jerry Bridges wanted to get down to it, get down to the core of what motivated him. How did he do it anyway? They were, he spent all week in, or month or whatever, and nothing was ever came out. And finally he said to him, you know, just, uh, they were talking about reading this Bible. And he said, well, what do you do when you miss reading? And he said, well, I don't know that I have. And then, then a little bit later, there in the com- course of the conversation, he says, "Well, they were talking about prayer." And he said, well, "You know, I pray all the time." Um, Billy Graham said, "I pray all the time." He says, "You mean you pray, you know, at night, morning, whatever?" And he goes, "No, I mean I pray all the time, like right now in my spirit. Well, you know that what I'm saying." would be edifying to be pleasing to the Lord. And he said right then it hit him that he just did what God has told every single one of us to do. And we could, you can be, you want to be all that he's created for you to be. You want that because it's a blessing and it's where you have so much freedom and joy and it's not, you know, entwined in sin or in the world's standards. So anyway, all that to say is I'm, I'm just two things I love. I love I love reading and studying, and I love hiding it in my heart. Because when you hide it in your heart, you have it available to you at any any time. And I, I can't underplay either one of those because they're, they're both just, they've saved my scrawny neck. Um, okay, then we back up. This isn't a political study or a my opinion study or any of that kind of stuff. Anything you say, really, we back up by Scripture. We, this is our truth. This is our source of truth. I love y'all, but I don't really care about your opinions about, you know, if you want to throw something out, it's, that's not, you know, it's not what we're doing here. Um, no question is silly. I don't have all the answers, obviously. Uh, now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part fully, then I shall fully know, even as, even as I am fully known. And so I, I think that, um, you know, we don't have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers. But God, you're not going to put him in a box either. Um, my desire isn't just to fill mouths, you know. I, I, I don't like sit soaking sour. I like go forth. And each one of y'all have a sphere of influence. And it's a big one. And so when you're there, I want you to go forth in your in his power for his glory. Um, let's see. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I've got. We are we have been given a trust and we must be proved faithful, and that's what I want y'all to grasp as well. Uh, knowledge merely puffs up. It's not for no, it's not for head. It's not for knowledge sake only. It's it love edifies. So it's knowledge that goes to the heart, that goes to the hands. So it starts head, heart, hands. Just think about you being a conduit of of His mercy. It comes to you, and it goes to you, and it comes out to you, out to others. Because, you know, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to, to do. Okie dokie. So we're doing an intro to James. And fortunately, it's... Oh, well, no, we're not. I just skipped something. Excuse me. I know y'all are going to be so disappointed that I remembered this. 
but we're going to sing because it, <laughs> it really kind of sat. See, here we go. See, it just had one little line. That's why I missed it. And we're going to sing. Do y'all know praise to the Lord, the Almighty? The Almighty? I love this song. So, and who, whoever has a voice, y'all start it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll wait till everybody gets it. Oh, well, Laura, thank you. <laughs> they, were gonna, they were gonna close it if, if we hadn't. I meant to do that. Oh, dear. And y'all, the reason why I do this for those that are new is because I love the old hymns from the past and there's so much theology in it. And sometimes I just read these things. And another thing that we've been doing at our home, and y'all really need to do this because it is so amazingly peaceful, is we undercurrent uh, play praise and worship music with no words. And it just, it is, it really is so peaceful. And like this morning, it was like I was running around and Bob turned it on on it. Oh, thank you. You know, just thank you. And then you can, in your spirit, you can go through these words that, that they're playing like, you know, they were doing some old ones before. It was, it was really good. Okay. You ready? Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise him for he is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to his temple draw near. Join me in glad adoration. Praise to the Lord, who are all things so wondrously reigneth. Shelters he under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how all thy longings have been granted in what he ordaineth? Praise to the Lord who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. Ponder anew. What the Almighty can do, if with his love he befriend thee. Praise to the Lord, oh, that all that is in me adore him. All that have life and breath come now with praises before him. Let the Amen sound from his people again. Gladly, for I, we adore him. I love that, y'all. Let the amen sound from his people again. <clears throat> okay, last time we did James, and as if that weren't convicting enough, now we're, no, excuse me, Jonah. Now we're on to James. And <clears throat> just get ready to be pricked. I mean, every verse in that book is like, okay, whatever. There are a few books of the Bible that have been more maligned than this little book. Controversy has waged over its authorship, its date, its recipients, its canonicity, and its unity. It is well known that Martin Luther had problems with this book. He called it a right, strawy epistle. But it's only strawy to the degree that it's sticky. 
It seems there are enough needles in this haystack to prick the conscience of every dull, defeated, and degenerated Christian in the world. Amen to that. Here is a right-stirring epistle which is designed to exhort and encourage, to challenge and convict, to rebuke and revive, to describe practical holiness and drive believers toward the goal of a true faith that is demonstrated by works. James is severely ethical and refreshingly practical. Christians often make great claims, do they not? But they're often guilty, very guilty, of belying them with their actions. Professing to trust God and to be his people, they cling tightly to the world and its values. In fact, the church quite blends with the world, doesn't it? The church has not gone out into the world, but the world has has come into the church. And it's a sad state. Possessing all the right answers, they contradict the gospel with the lives that they live, bringing no aroma of Christ to their circumstances. They can't see past what they what they do. Can't the people can't hear past what they see in the in in, in believers. James confronts this head on. It's not enough merely to talk about the Christian faith. He says we must live it. The proof of the reality of our faith is a changed life. It's a changed life. That's the proof. Genuine faith will inevitably produce good deeds. This is the central theme of the book of James, around which he supplies practical advice on living the Christian life. Considered one of the general epistles, James, like the epistle Peter, John, and Jude, is an encyclical. It means that it was not addressed to simply one person or to one church. It's addressed or individual churches or persons, but to a larger sphere of believers. In fact, it was almost said that some people just preached it. They would just get up and read it. The teaching in these general letters complements the doctrines of Paul, believe it or not. Paul emphasized faith. James stressed obedience for conduct. Peter, hope. John, love. And Jude, purity. So they all took their their different... Subjects In discussion of this authorship, the New Testament mentions at least four men named James. One, James, the son of Zebedee, and the brother of John, who was a disciple, Mark 1.19. James, the son of Alphaeus, Mark 3.18. James, the father of Judas, but not Judas Iscariot, in Luke 6.16. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, in Galatians 1.19. It seems clear in most commentaries that the author is James, the half-brother of the Lord, who became the recognized leader of the Jerusalem church. And, and boy, no, no wonder after Jesus showed up to him, I'm sure after he, I can't even imagine growing up with Jesus and not believing the messianic claims and then Jesus coming back after he had been, after he had been raised from the dead and and minister to him. Good morning, Chrissy. This conclusion is supported by the authoritative tone of the letter and by marked similarities in Greek between this epistle and the speech in James, which is recorded in Acts 15. Um, Though James was reared in the same home with Jesus, he apparently did not become a believer until after his resurrection. 
Christ's resurrection. He had not believed the claims that Christ had during his time preceding the resurrection. Scripture states in John, for even his own brothers did not believe him in John 7, 5. That was one of the hardest things. And when his, his family came to take him away because they thought he was crazy. I mean, that, that had to be. I mean, it can, all these things that you just you know read over, gloss over, you think that how that had to pierce the Savior's heart. After Christ rose from the dead, he appeared to James. How precious. It's kind of like, you know, and go tell Peter, you know, I'm risen. I mean, he's so preciously sweet to his own. Do you understand? He wants to be so personally sweet to you. And he does that. You see that in Scripture, all through Scripture. We're all wired so differently. And we all have so many different needs and wants. And and he knows that. He created our inmost being. He knows that. And so he meets you where you are. And then he pours into you and he wants you to grow up because he wants you to become like him because you want to become like him. After Christ rose from the dead, he appears to James. And as a result of this, whom Paul calls so definitely James, the Lord's brother, which I love that, in in Galatians 1.19, became a devoted follower of him who had not clearly understood before. So now he knows, and now he goes. What do you do with what you know? It's important. You don't want to sit, soak, and sour. It is evident from the record of the book of Acts that, that, that his man soon became, this man soon became an outstanding leader among the Christians in Jerusalem. So much so that some going from there to the churches founded by Paul are said to have come from James. In Galatians 2.12, James's encounter with the risen Lord. Uh, and y'all, the reason why I read this is because I'm very ADD. And if I don't, y'all would regret it. Because I will get off on a tangent, and then I'll, then I'll have to reel that rabbit back in, and I don't even know where I'm going or where I am supposed to be. So I keep my finger on the line so that I won't, if I get distracted like I'm doing right now and I can go off, then I know where to start. But so that's not because I think I'm, you know, whatever. I mean, most of the I'm not going to listen to you read, Beth. You don't even read very good. I've missed my place. But anyway, James's encounter with the risen Lord both brought him to saving faith as well as fanned that faith into a blazing flame. That's what you want. When you see your in your children the giftings or a gifting, you want to bend down and blow hard and fan it into flames. The same way in your own life. You want to fan those gifts into flames because that's why you're here, for heaven's sakes. It's not just to entertain yourself to death or to run around like a frenzied, crazy person like I do nine times, you know, all the time. But it is to, I mean, it's just to be. And the more I've read this, the more I was going over the old readings from the past, I'm thinking, just be, be with him. Be with him. He calls us. He woos us. It's not about, you can't do anything in your flesh. Period. Nothing eternal. Everything, everything eternal is only done through the power of the Spirit and dwelling within you. So you come apart and be with him. And he puts you all back together again. Uh, James' encounter with the risen Lord both brought him to a saving place as well as fanned his flames into flames, which could not be extinguished. 
James became a devoted follower of Jesus, whom he had prior not understood, but now he emphatically embraced. He was an outstanding leader among the Christians in Jerusalem. Christ appeared to James and then to all the apostles. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, Paul later listed James, Peter, and John as those reputed to be pillars in the church. Galatians 2.9. This is significant and indicates the prominent place James held in the church at Jerusalem. James was cognizant of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, but he concentrated his own efforts in leading his Jewish brothers to Christ. Every one of us has a calling on our lives. And I have a tendency when, oh, somebody's doing that, oh, I think I can do that, or I can do that, or I can do that, and I can't do that. And, you know, stick to your calling. And that's what they did. They stuck to their calling, and that's what produces the fruit. Um, Anyway, but everyone has a calling in their lives, and it's important that we're faithful to our own particular calling and not to seek to do others, as tempting as that may be, as tempting as it may be. We get worn out when we do, when when we do as well, and rob others of the blessings. When you try to do somebody else's job, just like so let's just say, for instance, the prayer request. I mean, you do such a beautiful job, and you always say such a beautiful prayer and everything like that. And it was, I mean, like, okay, okay, I gotta get this down. I got. I mean, it's like check, 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 check for a minute, you know, to try to get, you know. And so it's like it's such a gift for you. And so I appreciate that. But anyway, it's, this is this one thing. But it's like fitting a square peg into a round hole. You know, you know and I'll keep doing it till I, till I get the shavings off so it'll finally kind of stick in there like, you know. But it's not supposed to be that way. Again, the strongest evidence for the authorship of the epistle of James clearly is his half-brother, Christ's half-brother. Furthermore, if I can say these names, Origen, Eusebius, Cyril of Jerusalem, Athanasius, I don't know, Augustine, I can say, and many other writers support that view. And Josephus was a Jewish historian, and he also as well records that James was martyred in A.D. 62. He also said the epistle obviously must have been written prior to that date, since no mention is made of the Jerusalem Council, which was in the A.D. 49, James, which James took so active a role, it's likely that the letter was written between A.D. 45 and 48, which, interestingly, puts this as one of the earliest writings of the New Testament, which I think is so interesting because he's blending. All of Scripture is not just about Christianity, but starting from Genesis to Revelation is on obedience. And the obedience is for us. Like, I know I harp and bellow it out so much, but it, we are the ones that lose when we don't. If you follow out any other track, any other thing, it, you will be found wanting and you will be found miserable. Nothing but Christ fully satisfies the soul, period. The others are, per, you know, perhaps for a few moments or a few even decades, unfortunately. But it always ends up in the same place. Therefore, um, you can hardly be—it can hardly be seen as an argument against Paul's letter to the Romans, which everybody wants to so you know blatantly say, which it was written later. Romans, however, is not a refutation of James. 
This is apparent from Paul's relationship to James in Acts 21, 17 through 19. And it says in Scripture, When we arrived at Jerusalem, Paul is writing, this is Acts, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, no, he's not writing, must be Luke. Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministries. So James was this pillar that Paul looked up to. As, as well as Paul's recognition of James in Galatians 1, 18 and 19. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I, also, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Paul writes a little later in Galatians 2, 8 through 10, James, Peter and John, who's, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. They said they, all they asked was that we should continue, continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was so eager to do. So it's, it's apparent through the New Testament that Paul thought highly of James. Well, I just read that. Mm, in, very, in every respect. Together, Paul and James gave the full dimension of the faith. I love that. Paul writes, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James writes, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It is difficult for Christians to understand this tension in the apostolic teaching. The message of the whole Bible on faith and works brings clarity to the relationship between Paul and James. Because it's, like I said, from Genesis to Revelation. Both testaments, old and new alike, likewise warn of fake faith, and dubious good works. On this, the Puritan writer Joseph Ellen gives clarity, which I love this. Thank you again, Laura. I can't tell you how many times I look at this. The new man, this is taken from Ephesians 2, 3, among whom we all live, once lived, is the first part of the verse he puts. The new man <clears throat> takes a new course. His conversation is in heaven. No sooner does Christ call one by effectual grace, but he immediately becomes a follower of Christ. When God has given him a new heart, he henceforth walks in his statues. Though sin may dwell in him, truly a wearisome and unwelcome guest, it has no more dominion over him. He is not a man at church and another at home. He is not a saint on his knees and a cheat in his shop. He turns from all his sins and keeps all of God's statutes, though not perfectly, yet sincerely. That's the desire. What is the desire of my heart? File, repent, restore. File, repent, restore. You know, turn back. And the quicker you turn, the better you are. Those that don't turn quickly, it just, look at David. You can see it in the life, well written. It gets worse and worse. I can guarantee you a five minutes when, when he was... When he was confronted, he and he realized that it was him. He could not believe that he had gotten that far down. How low he went. Sin will take you deep, baby. Not allowing himself to breach any. Now he delights in the word and sets himself to prayer. He has a good conscience, willing in all things to live honestly without offense towards God and men. 
It's Hebrews 13, 18. Here you find the unsoundness of many that take themselves for good Christians. They take up the cheap and easy duties of religion, but are not thorough with the work. They are like a cake half-baked. Do you remember that in the Old Testament? God calls them that. You may find them exact in their words, punctual in their dealings, but they do not exercise themselves unto godliness. As for governing their hearts, they are strangers. The heart is deceitful above all cure who can understand it. God searches the heart. Motives are huge to him. We can fool anybody, but you will not fool God. You see them duly at church, but follow them to their families, and you see little but the worldly-minded. Follow them to their closets, and you will find their souls little look after. <clears throat> they seem religious, but do not bridle their tongues, James one twenty six. They may come to the closet, family meaning prayer, and family prayer, but follow them to their shops, and you find them in the habit of lying or some fashionable deceit. Just because the world embraces it as good does not mean it's good. The hypocrite is not thorough in obedience. <clears throat> the new man, and you know what's interesting? God is so sweet because he only brings it to light until you deal with that. And then he brings you with another thing to light until you deal with that. And another and another and another. The new man bears no fruit. Bears, excuse me. The new man bears fruit unto holiness. And though he make many a blot, many a mess, yet the... Yet the law and life of Jesus is what he looks for as his pattern. He respects all of God's commandments. He is sensitive in his conscience, even to the little sins and the little duties. In fact, in Proverbs it says, "Watch your, I don't know where it is, the little foxes in your vineyards, the little foxes in your vineyards, because they can destroy your crop. All these little petty sins, you know, that you think are the foe is not too bad or whatever, they destroy your testimony. They can destroy your testimony. Paul writes in Ephesians, as for you, you know what? I forgot to read Colossians. I'm going to do this first because after we read, after we sang the song, I don't know, I'm off my game today. It's raining. Um, Paul tells us in Colossians, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other because you've taken off your old practices. uh, Taken off your... uh, Let's see. uh, Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self and have put on new practices... Which, which, which put on your new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all, is all, and is in all, is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against each other. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. 
Anyway, and then it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. These are Paul's words in Colossians. But it's, it's, it, it just was brought back to my mind when I was back in Ephesians because he says in Ephesians, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were dead. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our sins. For it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of the grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast We cannot earn salvation, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. So you see, in Paul's writings, yes, we are saved by grace, but our true faith will produce works. Paul didn't have a problem with that. The message of Paul and James, therefore, though seemingly paradoxical at first glance, together bear witness to the consistent teaching that God justifies by faith alone, not works, yet true saving faith will persevere in faithful obedience. In works which God prepared in advance for all of us to walk in, as Paul stated, Paul also wrote about inner saving faith from God's perspective. John wrote about outward serving faith. From man's perspective, the true seed of saving faith is verified in the life of the tangible fruit of serving faith. James' point is that biblical faith is demonstrated by works. Of this, Spurgeon clarifies, which I love Spurgeon too. Y'all, I mean, whatever. They say it's so much better. I mean, why reinvent the wheel, right? I mean, he is. But you know what? Spurgeon, Bobby just read the Lost Books of Spurgeon or something like that. I don't remember. But it. He dealt so bad with severe depression and anxiety. And and after he read all of these things that happened to him in churches, like he was very much preeminently, you know, so like the, 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 script, the word alone. And, um, and the church was divided that they didn't believe that that was true. And even the closest people, he lost the boat for like, like seven to 2,000 that they didn't believe in the inerrancy of the word. And so he, he had struggle after struggle with depression. And, 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 um, and um, I mean, he was the most prolific person I've ever seen. I can't tell you how many books he wrote and all of the, all of the scripture references and stuff. I mean, just on Psalms alone is about that big. I mean, I, that's the only ones I have. But, they, but there, I mean, he was always writing. But anyway, he says... 
You are of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3.23. You are of Christ. You are his uh, donation for the Father gave you to the Son. His and his bloody purchase, by his bloody purchase, for he counted down the price for your redemption. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He is his by dedication. For you have consecrated yourself to him. His by relation. For you are named by his name. And made one of his brothers and co-heirs. Work practically to show the world that you are the servant, the friend, the bride of Jesus. When tempted to sin, reply, I cannot do this great wickedness, for I am of Christ. Immortal principles forbid the friend of Christ to sin. When wealth is before you to, to be won by sin, say that you are of Christ and don't touch it. Are you exposed to difficulties and dangers? Stand fast in the evil day, remembering that you are of Christ. Are you placed where others are sitting down idly, doing nothing? Rise up. To the work with all your powers and when the sweat stands upon your brow and you are tempted to loiter and cry no I cannot stop for I am of Christ. I'm going to interject something right there. I was listening to Christine Kane, I believe is her name who was ministers to sex, sex trafficking women that have been in sex trafficking or whatever that have been you know abducted and all of this stuff and I mean so many quotes by her, but I mean, where she, you know that she's come and told them about Jesus, and and and, the, and one of the girls says, "Well, why didn't you come sooner? If this is true, why didn't you come sooner?" But anyway, she was uh, being interviewed, and she said, "You know, I had um, it was just horrible. She has been inundated. I mean, I can tell you, Satan is very evil, and he when I mean, somebody is doing something that's spreading light like that." You can just rest assured she's under enormous attack. And um, she was feeling all these, you know, attacks of the evil one. And she's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm out of the, I'm, I'm quitting. Nobody will know. Nobody will, you know, it'll t- I have so much momentum now, 10 years ago. Nobody will know. I'm stopping. I'm done. I'm like, you know, how Elijah's like, I'm the only one left. Take me home. I can't do this anymore. I'm sick. I'm sick. I'm sick of it. And and I had kind of gotten in sort of a, a rut like that myself, and I was sitting there listening, and it really piqued my attention, so I was listening more. And she was saying, and I know because and, um, Luke has a friend that that is a Navy SEAL, and in when you start to train for Navy SEALs, the whole job is to get you to quit. I mean, everybody is just there. That is their goal is to make you quit, and it is miserable. Miserable. I mean, I can't even tell you all the misery there. But there's this one bell that there's always by there. And all you have to do is just go and ring that bell, and then you can go home. You don't have to do it. You're done. You don't, you don't have to do it. You just give up. And so she was saying, her husband was watching that on, on a, a history channel, and she said, it just hit her. She said, I can't, I can't ring that bell. Yeah, I'm in it. It reminded me of when Peter, Jesus looked at Peter and says, are, are you going to leave me too? Are you leaving me too? It's getting hard. Are you going to Are you going to stand by me? And Peter goes beautifully. Where Where will we go? You have it. You have everything. And this is what I want for us. I don't want to bail because it's hard, 
And it is hard. Ain't nothing easy about this life. And Jesus didn't say it was going to be easy. He said, you're going to have the lebus. You're going to have, it's going to be pressed down like a grape. And what comes out when you get pressed down? We're praying that Jesus does. We're praying that. Because that's what you want. Um, okay. No, I cannot stop for I am of Christ. If I were not purchased by blood, I might be like Issachar crouching between two burdens. But I am of Christ and cannot loiter. When the siren song of pleasure would tempt you from the path of right, reply, your music cannot charm me. I am of Christ. When the cause of God invites you, give yourself to it. When the poor require you, give your goods and yourself away. For you are of Christ. Pour out your light, like Paul says, I pour out, in Philippians, I pour out my life like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service that comes from somebody else's faith. He's pouring it out so somebody else can get it. And he's happy about it. And I'm joyful. Never belie your profession. Always be one of those whose manners are Christian, whose speech is like the Nazarene, whose conduct and conversation are so redolent of heaven that all who see you may know that you are the Savior's. Do people recognize you as the Savior's child or brother? Recognize you as his features of love and his countenance of holiness. That's what we're supposed to be. Because he was the first fruit for us, and he came as an example to show us how to live through his power, because you can't do it in your flesh. You cannot do it. You will fail every time. I am a Roman was proof of integrity in ages past. Just by saying that, I am a Roman was proof of integrity. It carried with it this vast definition. So people wanted to be a Roman citizen. Far more than let it be your proof of holiness, I am of Christ. Isn't that great? He is so good. If I could just write like that, if I could, maybe in heaven, I can write and sing. (laughs) Whatever. Okay, the recipients in James are clearly addressed as the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, James 1.1. And the letter has a marked Jewish flavor. The book has a substance and authority of the prophets and the style and beauty of the Psalms. Both the prophets and the Psalms bear witness to a call of a changed behavior of those who faithfully followed God. I'm reminded of Jeremiah 7. I just love the way God, God speaks to Jeremiah in here. He said, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. This is what he says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And by the way, people can say they're a Christian all day long, but it doesn't make them a Christian to say they're a Christian. Even the demons believe that and tremble, it says in Scripture. Or you can say you're a car in the garage. It's not going to make you a car. Just because you're in church doesn't make you a Christian. 
If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, trust me, it is to your own harm. And anything, you are going to have a God that you follow. It can be self. It can be anything. But you will follow it. And it is to your own harm if it's not the Lord. Then I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in the land I gave your fathers forever and ever. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. You're trusting in these words that are worthless. Just because you say something and you don't really live it or mean it, it doesn't make it true. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and they were killing babies on the altar, and allow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say we are safe, safe to do all these detestable practices? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. You're not fooling anybody. I love it when you tell the king of Assyria, I know where you sleep and how you pump up against me. You're not fooling me. And again, he says in Jeremiah, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Go ahead. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. I don't care about your silly sacrifice. If you're just doing it as a ritual, why do I care? It means nothing to me. Eat to meet yourselves. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you. And y'all, it's not to be... It's not for your harm. It's for your good. That it will go well for you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. And they went backwards and not forwards. Because like I've told you before, you will never stay right here. You will never stay right here. You're either going this way or you're going this way. But you're not staying static. The psalmist writes, teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. I mean, there's, uh, in Psalm 119 it says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then it says, Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the, of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or... I don't know, but his his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which shields its fruit in season. Not so the wicked. Remember Tisha Kelly's Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. But the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. He says, anyway, I... The word is hugely important, and hiding it in your heart is so important for your own self. Um, And, of course, our Lord's own words bear witness to a changed behavior from his followers. In Luke 6, 46-49, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you you call me that? 
Why are you wasting your time? Like, what game are you playing in front of your friends or something? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. Our rock is Christ. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who bears hears my word and does not put them into practice is like a man who built on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Other renditions and it fell with a great crash. Indeed, from Genesis to Revelations, the Bible emphasizes obedience for our own good. Because we're so prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone, you know, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for the courts above. Indeed, but obedience does not justify us and save us. Rather, obedience demonstrates that we are His and that we believe His ways are the best for our lives. Because when you act on something, when you behold it, if you believe it, you will act on it. If you really believe it, you act on it. And when you see your behavior, that's a good test of what do I trust. We should, we certainly delve more into, we will we'll certainly delve more into this as we go through James. In fact, I probably went overboard on that, but anyway, I don't. Whatever. Back to the overview. James <coughs> is definitely written to a Jewish consistent. <coughs> cons- Excuse me, constituency. <clears throat> Though the letter demonstrates careful Greek diction, it is nonetheless filled with extensive Hebrew symbolism. It is likely that Peter wrote to the Jewish Christians scattered to the west, and that James addressed the Jewish Christians scattered to the east in Babylon and Mesopotamia. I love that everybody had their little area. The book of James is as much a lecture as it is a letter. Though it opens with customary salutation of an epistle, it lacks personal references that were so common in Paul's letters and, and others, and it has no concluding benediction either. This so-called epistle is, was obviously prepared for public reading as a sermon to the congregations addressed. The tone is clearly authoritative, but not autocratic. James includes, listen to this, included 54 imperatives in the 108 verses. 54 an average of one call for action in every other verse. That is why it so easily pierces the conscience and the hearts of the readers. Most scholars suggest that this book, like I said, was written shortly before James's martyrdom in 62. There are some, however, who place the time of the writing close to the Jerusalem Council in 46. Nevertheless, it seems like the book of James was one of the first New Testament books written. Many have supposed it was the earliest New Testament book designed to bridge the gulf between the old and the new dispensations, which I think is interesting. And so to prepare the way for Paul's gospel, which was to follow. Paul alone, Paul alone speaks of justification from all things rather than mere forgiveness, as precious as that is. The book of James is simple, yet organized in logical treaties on the ethical aspects of the Christian life. This fact, along with the realization that the book is largely composed of general exhortations and admonitions, has led some to call it a New Testament counterpart to the Proverbs. So it's got, you know, you know, Proverbs has all these different things. Well, that's sort of like 
people feel like it, James. The major theme of the book is the appeal to believers that is necessary to demonstrate inward faith by outward actions. In James one twenty two, faith that is not demonstrated will accomplish nothing, as James says, and it is declared dead. The alleged lack of unity in James has been a prevalent complaint. Some contend the book bears a loose format like that of Hebrew wisdom literature, like we just said, of the Proverbs. But however, there's little need for confusion. The epistle demonstrates a marked unity and a clear goal. The purpose of his letter is to exhort the early believers to Christian maturity and to holiness in life. This letter deals more with the practice of Christian faith than with its precepts. James told his readers how to achieve spiritual maturity through a confident stand, compassionate service, careful speech, contrite submission, and concerned sharing. He dealt with every area of a Christian's life. James did. What he is, what he does, what he says, what he feels, and what he has. With his somewhat stern teaching on practical holiness, James showed how Christian faith and Christian love should be expressed in a variety of actual situations. This seemingly unrelated parts of the book can be harmonized in light of this unified theme. It's not like the pearls were just rolling around in a box. He says it was to produce a necklace of priceless beauty. It's basically what he's doing. The theme of the epistle is a living faith. No one wants a dead faith. Why would you want a dead faith? A faith that is evidenced by righteous living and godly behavior. That's why I just find it so confusing. I don't understand how, why people want to call themselves Christian. They do so much harm to the body, but they don't really want to be a Christian. They just call themselves Christians and they don't live like it at all. Why bother? I don't understand that. Throughout the epistle, we will recognize a very close connection between its instruction and that given in Matthew chapters 5 and 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, which is, you know, only able to do by the Holy Spirit living within us. It deals with deep and abstruse doctrinal, doctrinal themes rather than with practical Christian ethics. It is indeed a demonstration of a new creation, as Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new one. He's not. He's going to. He is new. The old is gone. The new has come. Perfect? No. But aiming towards perfection with being conformed to the image, kind of like Enoch. And as he takes his which means a narrowing in this. As we go through life, you know, he's per, he's getting rid of all the peripheral. Some of it, it when we went to a campus crusade for Christ thing when I was younger than y'all. I mean, I was just barely 22, you know, and, and, and he was, but I still remember, he said, you know, you know you're far along in your Christian walk when he is taking out the good for the better, you know. But at first, when he starts cutting off all these things, there's a lot to cut off, right? It's a whole lot, you know. But your 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 you know, your your life is because is narrowing, narrowing, narrowing to Jesus just like Enoch, come on and be with me, Lord. We are continually renewing our gaze on Jesus Christ. Then you think about this, y'all. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews twelve, one through three, therefore, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, 
all these people that have gone before you, all the people in Hebrews 11 of the Hall of Fame, all of these people that have, these great Christian, Billy Graham, all these people that have gone before you, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, all the peripheral things that hinders. Let us throw off everything that hinders and let us, oh my gosh, my mind is not working today. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Not yours for me, but for me. The race marked out for me. As always, ever fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and ring the bell. Go ring the bell. Where would we go? You have the answer to all of life, Lord. Where would we go? This is more than the work of a moment. When Paul stated, I live by faith in the Son of God, he was speaking of a lifestyle. This is not just a fleeting thought or a brief prayer. This was his whole life. As he said, I consider my life nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having righteousness on my own that comes from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. Righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And then he says, I want to know Christ. That's what your prayer should be this year. I want to know Christ. I want to know him in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already attained all this. Or have already been made perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But this one thing I do, forget what's behind. You can't change yesterday. Forget it. Strain toward what is ahead. Press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature, Paul says, should take such a view of things. But own something you think differently, God too will make that clear to you. Only live up to what you have already attained. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Is a, don't, keep, don't go backwards. Keep going. Start where you are. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. I mean, this, this is his push. Push for us. Why did I say any of that? I have no idea. And I, didn't, I moved my finger. <laughs> that is always trouble. Okay, let's see. Um, Paul tells us in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. So he thought of himself as dead. Paul, dead. Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You want me to sing it to you? I've been crucified with Christ. I could never memorize this one, so I had to put it to song. That will help you memorize. I'm not kidding. It's ridiculous. But anyway, um, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. On this verse, the Bible Knowledge Commentary states, The self-righteous, self-centered Saul died. Further death with Christ ended Paul's enthronement of self. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was, I mean, he was the elite. He was the Navy SEAL of his day. I mean, he had every credential for a Jew. Every credential. And he he stated all that in Philippians. He yielded the throne of his life to another, to Christ. But it was not in his own strength that Paul was able to live the Christian life. The living Christ himself 
took up his abode in Paul's heart. Christ lives in me. Yet Christ does not operate automatically in a believer's life, unfortunately. It is a matter of living the new life by faith in the Son of God. Faith is the what is the I hope I can get this across, but it is the motivator of obedience. It is then not faith and not works or legal obedience that releases divine power to live a Christian life. This faith, stated Paul, builds on the sacrifice of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. In essence, Paul affirmed, if he loved me enough to give himself for me, then he loves me enough to live out his life in me. If he loved me enough to save me, he loved me enough to show me how to live. We cannot commune with Christ too closely, nor can we exert too much energy in pursuing such communion. If we make nearness to him our aim, we will find ourselves rewarded a hundredfold beyond our efforts. It is the Spirit's role to show us the beauty of Jesus. That's the truth. Chiefly through ordinary means such as scripture reading, prayer, observing the sacraments, community, and private and public worship. That Jesus is the greatest beauty of all. The reason for rotten fruit in our lives, the reason why we stay stuck on certain sins for years, is that we spend too much effort trying to be like Jesus relative to the investment we make in simply being with him. Sometimes that's hard, isn't it? Have y'all ever tried to be quiet and still before the Lord? I mean, without, without your mind going, to, I've got to pick up the kids, I've got, to, I've got to make the grocery list, I've got to go to Target, I've got, you know, it's like, and then start, start over again. It is quite hard. It's quite hard to meditate on his precepts and, and, to, and to be still and quiet before him. It's so hard that I think we often miss his still small voice. I know I do. If you want to become like Jesus, we have to stop trying to be like him and start responding to his generous, kind invitation to come be with him. Come to me, he says. All you who are weary, (laughs) I bet every one of us could raise our hand, burden, both hands. Jesus says, and I'll give you rest. I want to give you rest, Beth. You flit around like a knucklehead. Jesus is the beauty who kisses the beast in us. He is. And when he kisses us, we become beautiful. He doesn't want to be beautiful. If we are asking, how do we live by the Spirit? The answer is, whatever moves you towards Jesus. What moves you towards him? I miss you towards him. Some people love to just sit out in nature and look at the water. I mean, everything points to his majesty. Everything does. He's amazing. For some, the spirit convicts. For others, the spirit comforts, disciplines, empowers, weakens, etc. In order to get all of us to Jesus, who is the ultimate destination. Everything the Spirit does points to the beauty of God, points to the beauty of Jesus. The more you know him, the more you will love him. And the more you love him, the more you will want to serve him and simply be with him. John says 
in 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Puritan Richard Sibb says, do we entertain Christ to our loss? <laughs> Does he come empty? No. He comes with all grace. His goodness is a commutative, diffusive goodness. He comes to spread his treasures, to enrich the heart with all grace and strength to bear all afflictions. Look what he did. He gives us his power. We can't do it. I, I would have fled that cross. But he can. He said, he never said we could. But he said he would. To encounter all dangers, to bring peace of conscience and joy in the Holy Spirit, he comes indeed to make our hearts, as it were, a heaven. Who doesn't want their heart, as it were, to be a heaven? I mean, you know, all that inside, like like James says it in him, you know, you, you want what you want, you can't have it. And then, you know, this inside of you, you're having this battle. It's like, I don't want that. I want the peace that passes understanding to guard my heart in Christ Jesus. James is saying that it is not by works which saves us, but works which prove us. It just shows you. You can't be a fruit inspector for anybody's life. It shows you. In fact, really, the only person that you need to be tending to is right here in your chair. Because you're not going to change anybody's heart. Only God does that. Only God does that. James is saying, it's not by works which says, but works which prove us we are His, and that the Holy Spirit is within us, working through us by faith to bring much glory to Him, equipping us for every good work. Our prayer should be, Lord, how can my life bring you the most glory? Um, the last thing, oh, I did good. last thing on, um, I'm going to read is, I thought this was so good. I mean, it's like God is so sweet. I'm not kidding you. He just gives me these things right when I'm, we're doing, you know, it fits so perfectly with, or I think it does. Anyway, ministers to me and, you know, sorry, y'all are having to <laughs> be subjected to it. Okay, <clears throat> let's see. This is um, Baxter, and I love him too. If you have sincerely given yourself up to God, well, first of all, he says in Romans six twenty two, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. If you have sincere, we have a good master, but sin is not a good master. Satan is not a good master. He lures and entices and all of that. And he goes, then he fills you with shame. Just, you know, comes back at you. If you have sincerely given yourself up to God and consented to his covenant, show it by turning the face of your endeavors and conversations quite another way. Seek heaven more fervently and diligently than you ever sought the world. Because it matters how you live your life now. I am telling you this, girls. It matters very greatly how you live your life right now. Or fleshly pleasures. Holiness consists not in mere forbearance of a sensual life, but principally in living unto God. Because you've seen some like people that are apart from God, but they're just trying to rigidly check off everything to be this perfect Christian or whatever. Without solves the power of the Spirit. A works-oriented type person and they lack the peace and the joy and all the things that God gives us 
The principle of heart of holiness is within and consists in the love of God, his word, his ways, his servants, his honor, and his interest in the world. It consists in the soul's delight in God and the ways of God. It is incl- because he, you believe it to be true. You believe it, what he says, to be true. You will act on it. It is inclined towards him and seeks after him to please him. It hates to offend him. The expression of it in our life, and sometimes, y'all, it's just sickening how often I do the same thing over and over again. The wrong, the same wrong thing. <laughs> it's like, seriously, Beth, what is the deal? It's like worse than a two-year-old, you know? I can see putting all those books in the hallway. <laughs> I mean, look like fun. Make a library in the hallway. Why not? Yeah, whatever. It hates to offend him. The expression of it in our lives consists in a constant, diligent exercise of the internal life according to the direction of the Word of God, according to the direction of the Word of God. That's why you see so many, even if they're baby Christians, they don't know the Word. They don't know the Word. Read it, and don't expect anybody else to teach it to you. It's kind of like, like when you're raising kids. Don't expect anybody else to be teaching them about God. You do it. They're under your roof. They're your children. It's, it, it's important that we take responsibility because we are. Fire will test the quality of each man's work. Christians, you don't want that. It's not out of fear. It's, it's out, of, out of the fact that you know it's the best. I start preaching. And I, I mean, it's, it's good. It's not bad. If you are a believer and have subjected yourself to God as your absolute sovereign king and judge, it will then be your work to obey and please him as a child, his father, or a servant, his master. Do you think that God will have servants and have nothing for them to do? Will one of you commend or reward your servant for doing nothing and take it at the year's end for a satisfactory answer or account? If he might say, say, I have done no harm to you. I didn't do you any harm. God calls you not only to do no harm, but to love and serve him with all your heart and soul and might. If you have a better master than you had before, you should do more work than you did before. Will you not serve God more zealously than you, than you serve the devil? Will you not labor harder to save your souls than you did to damn them? Hmm. Will you not be more zealous in good than you were in evil? If you are true believers, you have now laid up your hope in heaven. Seek it as worldlings set themselves to seek the world. Father, I just thank you that you aren't ambiguous and that you do make everything clear. And that you do love us and delight in us and rejoice over us and sit with singing. Lord, I, I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we will rest secure in you today and in, in your lap, Lord. And, and just, as you said, the one the Lord lo- loves rests between his shoulders. That we would feel our head and your chest and, and your strong heart beating as if it did. I don't know. But it's comforting to know, Lord, that you care for us as great as you are and as little as we are. And I, and I thank you for that. I pray, Father, we would, we would love you more through this study and get to know you even better. For your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.